0: Alex West, co-host of the Pulse podcast. Today's guest is Kelsey Millard. Kelsey is the founder and CEO of Sitka, a digital health company facilitating primary care and specialty communication via video consults, also known as e-consults. Sitka and their provider group Sitka Medical Associates work with payers, provider groups, and accountable care organizations to improve access to specialty care while avoiding unnecessary specialist costs. Last year, Sitka raised a $14 million Series A round of funding led by Venrock. Prior to Sitka, Kelsey spent time with the Senior Care Network, Honor, as well as United Health Group, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. She also holds a Master's of Public Administration from the University of Kansas. In this episode, I spoke with Kelsey about her journey to starting Sitka how her time in the public sector has impacted her career, and her experiences as an early stage founder. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kelsey, thank you for joining me on the Pulse podcast. How are you?
1: Yeah, great. Alex, thanks so much for having me.
0: So we have a tradition. We like to ask our guests this icebreaker, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: This is such a funny question. When I was about five years old, I grew up in rural Kansas outside of Lawrence. And I had this dream of being a daycare center in an RV. But of course, because I grew up in Kansas, we needed tornado shelter. So the vision as a five-year-old was that I was going to drive around and pick up all of the kids in the morning in this RV. And then I was going to take care of them. I would then drive the RV and below the RV would be a basement for if there were tornadoes during the day. So that was my you know, entrepreneurial vision at the age of five for combining a, a daycare pickup service and tornado shelter all in one.
0: That is a great, very specific, very Kansas. What did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: slightly embarrassing. I don't think I've actually shared that <laughs> into my professional world
0: <laughs> well, i am I am very grateful then that you decided to share it with us today. Um, tell me about your path to starting Sitka.
1: The path to Sitka was certainly a, a windy one and perhaps not an obvious one, at least not obvious to me at the time, while I was making all of these career decisions. So, as I said, I grew up, in a rural part of Kansas and actually had the same primary care provider my entire youthhood. So from when I was born to when I went to college and the, the primary care provider actually kind of told me that I had to stop coming home from college to see them because I needed to be seen an adult physician as opposed to a pediatrician. And that actually had a heavy influence on the way I started to think about continuity of care when I was entering my early professional years. And the, the path to Sitka, you know, after spending time in Washington, DC and working on policy, my attraction to starting an organization is really around impact and recognizing that what we do at Sitka does have an impact on, on Medicare beneficiary lives every single day. That's actually the, the motivating factor that has been a really strong guide throughout my career is a desire to have improving healthcare delivery and access an impact on individual lives to actually move the collective into more value-based care. And that's kind of been the path from the East Coast out to the West Coast, the introduction of Silicon Valley through my experience at Honor. And you know, starting a company is incredibly normalized in the Bay Area as well which I think also alters one's perspective on the accessibility to being able to do that and and therefore potential success trajectory.
0: And can you give our listeners a quick overview of Sitka, the sort of product you're providing, and its general strategy?
1: We started Sitka after seeing what happens with really the broader adoption of the privatization of Medicare into Medicare Advantage plans really driving this value-based care method. And so with primary care providers starting to take on more risk in organizations like ACOs and direct contracting entities and the broader Medicare Advantage landscape, that's great for primary care. However, one massive aspect of the, the delivery system that's left out is specialty care. So if you think about how specialty care operates today, it's very much a fee-for-service system. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to access and navigate. So the average wait time for a Medicare beneficiary to access a specialty such as a cardiologist or endocrinologist, you know, can be eight to 12 weeks depending on, on where you live. And that in and of itself is incredible inefficiency that drives up unnecessary cost, ER utilization, um, additional out, outpatient visits, and things that are totally preventable. And so the motivation for really starting Sitka was how do we bring specialty care into a value-based care arrangement? And so at a high level, what we do at Sitka is that we connect with primary care providers to enable them to access our virtual specialty network through consults. So historically, these are known as curbside consults. However, with the Recent adoption of and recognition of the value of this, the policies have changed. This is actually a reimbursable service through Medicare, and what we do is legitimize and reduce the legal risk that sometimes is associated with curbsides by actually facilitating a video and text-based consult within hours, and so this improves the access to the knowledge for the primary care provider, and. Around 80% of the time, it completely alleviates the need for that Medicare beneficiary to actually go see a specialist because the primary care provider can collaborate with our specialty providers to be upskilled just in time and deliver the appropriate clinical care that's necessary.
0: And my understanding is that these consults are generally asynchronous. So one provider records a video and sends it and they later receive a recording back Is that the case or is there some amount of face-to-face discussion or is that something that may be coming in the future?
1: We actually do the majority of our work in an asynchronous fashion. That's absolutely correct. We did build and launch an ability to have synchronous um, engagement. So the scenario would be this. The primary care provider is seeing the patient in their outpatient clinic or in their skilled nursing facility because they're part of an ISNP. And in real time, they would bring in in a video-based format one of our specialists to the conversation. What we found though is that our healthcare system crumbles because of scheduling inefficiency. And by taking scheduling out of the entire experience, we're actually able to be incredibly efficient with both the primary care provider's time and the specialist time, and of course reduce the cost of access. And so while we have synchronous capabilities, it's not the primary product that we find delights our customers today.
0: It sounds like those asynchronous communications are really solving the problem in a way that the synchronous face-to-face interactions would solve as well. But you're able to solve that scheduling problem without losing necessarily the value of that clinical insight.
1: Correct. The value and efficiency of it right which which drives down the lower price point to access it because it's not done synchronously so you don't have to have a specialist just waiting you know in queue for that call whereas in an asynchronous manner if you think about what happens in a specialty provider's course of their day there's significant downtime for these specialty providers because patients don't show up for appointments they're waiting for a patient to have a procedure so they actually do have time during the day to respond to these consults within several hours that actually delight them because they get to use their clinical training in a way that cuts to the chase by collaborating with another practitioner that is really delightful for them.
0: I'd like to take a quick step back to your public sector experience. You mentioned working on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. would love to hear more about that experience.
1: Directly out of graduate school, I was taken to Washington, D.C. through a postgraduate fellowship with the Kaiser Family Foundation and talk about a powerhouse organization of truth and data and driving the conversation around policy and, and what's happening in the general landscape for Medicare and Medicaid and other really important topics. And so that put me squarely in this incredible foundation world and its ability to influence and impact and drive different conversations from a place of truth, despite various political landscapes. From Kaiser, I I went back and actually was a fellow at a pediatric hospital in the Kansas City area because I wanted to have different proximity to the front lines and see, again, where that impact was being made. And the high of that I got of walking into a hospital every day, recognizing that there was life-changing, scientifically delivered medicine occurring in that institution every day was incredibly powerful. And it was an incredibly emotional place to work, frankly, but also was really motivating for me. And after that experience, I was another a fellowship after graduate school. I went back out to Washington, D.C. through the advisory board company because I wanted to broaden my horizon and see different delivery institutions that deliver our care today. And so I got to work with critical access hospitals to large institutions, multi-facility um, organizations that occupied several states to really expand my, my breadth of experience and understanding. And I was working on the revenue cycle side, which obviously put me squarely into the flow of funds, which is the main motivation of our delivery system today. Whether we like it or not, that's the truth. After advisory board, Obamacare had passed. Then I lived on Capitol Hill and just remembering these, these really momentous points in our, in our political history of the, the passage of Obamacare, and I wanted to join the effort. And uh, I had an opportunity to be employee number five at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And so I was on the ground floor for two and a half years building CMMI with you know Rick Gilfillan and Don Berwick and Sachin Jain and, and some really remarkable folks. And, and so that was really my my foray into you know, Medicare and Medicaid and the policies that we were developing that actually I could see how those could impact the front lines of care, not only for people like my my grandmother, who was, you know, 79 at the time, but also for these large institutions that I had just worked with coming out of the advisory board company. From CMMI, I was really excited to go have an impact in a, in a different way and start to understand the private side of the insurance world and went to United Health Group, uh, where I was a VP, overseeing some policy strategy for both Optum and United Healthcare. And to see the insides of a massively successful publicly traded company was incredibly. In- enlightening as to how an organization of that size and magnitude works and how they think about Medicaid and Medicare and ACOs and bundled payments, all of these things that I had just worked so hard to create on the inside to see how they were being not only interpreted, adopted, and and evolving on the outside. And then from United Health Group, I was working with folks like Tom Scully, who spent a fair amount of time with us at CMMI from just a Lobbying perspective and an education perspective, and I had great respect for Tom, and he had just backed Navi Health, and Navi Health was the perfect playground for me to go because I could take my policy experience from CMMI and United Health Group, and then really apply it through the distribution um, and adoption of bundled payments. Mm -hmm. And so, through Navi Health, I got to travel around the country and convince hospital CFOs that bundled payments were a great way to start dipping their toe in the water for risk. It was pretty controlled. They could drop episodes. And that was definitely a a highlight for me where you can actually see these policies take effect. And Alex, I'm sure it was similar to your experience at Allidade, right? You actually get to see the impact that these ACOs have on on Medicare beneficiaries' lives. And that's incredibly powerful and motivating and and really continues to, to drive me every day. And so that was, you know, my, my tour out east uh, in the DC metro and um, Navi Health was successfully acquired by Cardinal and I was ready to, to do my next venture. I had already worked for a publicly traded company at that point and decided to come west after meeting Seth Sternberg, right when they were just starting Honor. And Honor is a tech-enabled home care company focused, you know, senior, the senior population, again, within Medicare. And even though it was the private duty side, was really motivated by by the idea of getting it on the ground again of an early stage company and figuring out what it took to actually build, build the business and have positive impact on all of these individuals' lives who had signed up for us. And Honor was doing really well. And after that experience for two and a half years, we found product market fit and... As I said previously, it's incredibly normalized to start companies in the Bay Area and really started to spend time actually with a specialty physician and saw the inefficiencies of how a specialty physician operates today. And that's what really motivated me to think about how do we bring specialty care not only into value-based care, but also drive efficiency for when people do need to access it so that we're improving you know clinical outcomes and the total cost of care.
0: That's a really interesting and exciting arc. You know, the health tech space consists of individuals with more healthcare backgrounds, clinical or non-clinical. You have plenty of people coming from more of the tech side, but you are part of a group in that space that has that really interesting public-private crossover experience. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you believe that experience brings to the digital health space and how your public sector experience is impacting your role at Sitka.
1: Yeah, that's a heavy question, uh, in in a positive way, right? Because I think after being on the inside of understanding how government benefits are delivered and the vast improvements that we need to make, drives a different motivation for me. I think a lot of individuals start companies to be that headline, to be that incredibly successful organization, um, while learning along the way. And there's a ton of attraction to that, right? That's that's a natural human characteristic. However, my motivation is squarely on positive impact. Are we moving the needle for every patient and provider's life that we touch based on the experience that we offer? And my experience in value-based care drives to a different level of, of desired outcome. Yes, I want Sitka to be a successful company, right? Of course, but success for me is measured by impact and not just you know a, a headline. And I think that sometimes the valley can get really attracted to the idea of raising venture capital and PE money, which they're incredible partners in. And we're fortunate enough to be partnered with Brian Roberts and Bob Kocher at Benrock. But I think there are a lot of people who get so wrapped up in the world of how much money have I raised that there's sometimes a lack of appreciation or focus within the day-to-day business on what that money is allowing you to do, which in my mind, that money allows Sitka to continue to build a better system for our Medicare beneficiaries to access specialty care and create a different path for primary care physicians to be successful in value-based care. So because I'm still very squarely in the value-based care arena with Sitka, that impacts how we think about the business every day. And I think that's reflected in and some of the leadership that we have at Sitka, we are firm believers that value-based care is actually going to deliver better experience and outcomes. And people like Edwin Miller, who came, you know, who co-founded Allade, he's squarely in that camp, and that influences what we focus on, how we prioritize, you know, efforts from a product perspective, from a partnership perspective. That we are entering this from a incredibly. Strong position and belief in value based care. And that's how my policy experience has translated very directly to my experience of starting Sitka.
0: That mission focus is so exciting. I'd love to dive more into the problems you're trying to solve today at Sitka. Why is it so difficult for patients to receive the specialty care that they're looking for? And what are some of the factors that you're seeing? drive this access gap for the patients that Sitka is trying to help?
1: So the barriers with accessing specialty care today for for beneficiaries is this. Let's just take a a patient experience and make this pretty tangible. You go see your primary care provider that's a Medicare Advantage organization, say ChenMed, say Central Ohio Primary Care. That provider within one of those two organizations is trying to do as best possible job as they can to control not only the cost, but also the quality and the amount of care that you're given. However, in today's world, if you need to see a specialist, you're oftentimes referred out. That's literally a slip of paper to a referral coordinator. Sometimes those appointments may be arranged for you. Maybe there is transportation that your provider group offers for you as a a member, but oftentimes there's not. And should you actually make it to that appointment that may be six or eight weeks delayed, that also could expose you to a copay. And we know that many of our Medicare and Medicare Advantage members don't have a ton of resources. So, the way that we think about solving that from a development standpoint is how are we connecting that primary care provider to that information to alleviate that unnecessary referral anyway? If we can alleviate those unnecessary referrals, create a better member experience with the primary care provider, we can actually reduce the cost. We can reduce the time it takes to get that insight and that care and create a better member experience as opposed to making that member try to identify you know, when their appointment was, expose them to a copay. And of course, the heart of this comes into play when you think about how that specialist is reimbursed. Because specialty providers today are reimbursed in a fee-for-service mechanism. So every time they see a patient, they bill, um, regardless of outcome. Every time they do a procedure, they bill, regardless of necessity. And we, I know that there are you know, utilization management features and there are some triggers, quote, in the system. But largely, it's an unmanaged space. And so one of our partners, um, who's an ISNP uh, in an institutional special needs plan within the Medicare program, they have analyzed their specialty utilization, and for every one anchor visit that their member has with a specialist, it results in five to seven downstream visits for that member, many of which are not clinically indicated. But because the specialty provider is paid on a fee-for-service basis, it drives this desire to say, oh, I should see you back quarterly. And so this quarterly cadence is created because again, the system has incentivized these specialist providers, many of them who are incredibly you know, powerful, smart, wonderful practitioners, but the structure of their operating system doesn't allow them to actually practice value-based care. They practice food for service medicine. And so therein lies the problem that we're untangling the economic incentives that currently exist between specialty providers and those primary care providers that are at risk for the total cost of care, but they have no visibility as to what happens when they send a patient out and they lose all control. So those primary care providers are left kind of holding the bag, if you will, of of the financial exposure of their member seeing the specialty provider every quarter when it's not necessarily clinically indicated. So that's the crux of the problem that we're really trying to bring these two worlds together in a collaborative spirit through video and and text communication that really drives the ability for these specialty practitioners to be incredibly efficient with the talent and the the skills and the knowledge that they have while upskilling these primary care providers just in time.
0: You've caught out a couple difficulties and pain points in the referral process for primary care providers, the paper process is one, the scheduling inefficiencies you mentioned earlier. But there's also work that it takes to avoid that referral, if it can be avoided, with something like a video consult. What is Sitka doing to streamline that process? And how is your experience working with these providers shaping that approach?
1: Alex, that's a super perceptive question that actually comes down to provider workflow. Creating clinical pathways that make it easier for providers to use Sitka than to make the referral out. So from a technology and product perspective, we think about it from where do you consciously add friction in workflow versus where do you alleviate it to change the flow of, of their entire process? So we want to have spent a tremendous amount of time in clinic with these folks to figure out what they do today and then how we can make it better without adding more work to their plate. Because these primary care providers are doing the best that they can, just as the specialists are in the systems that we've created for them to operate within. But the primary care provider often has, you know, a set amount of minutes, 7 to 15, if you're lucky, to interact with their member and their patient. And so you're trying to cram as much into that visit as humanly possible. Because as soon as you leave that room, you have the next patient (laughs) to go to. So there's not a lot of downtime for practitioners to actually request this consult from our specialty network. So what we've done is video one eases it because some people are more inclined to just do a quick recording. They're comfortable. It mimics a verbal dictation of a case from their medical school. And so it's a skill that they're very familiar with that they can really roll with quickly. The other benefit of video is that they can do it actually in front of the member and and include that member and patient. So if the PCP would like to highlight a rash or a more complex case, such as neurology case, and they want to highlight a gait or a tremor, Um, they can take a video of of that member's experience and um, actually include that in the consult. So there's a lot of efficiency to be garnered in that. And obviously, in a post-pandemic world, there's a different level of comfort that exists with video and uh, and voice than what previously existed. But the second thing is that we've offered other ways to request expertise. So they can start a draft consult Come back and finish it later when they're doing the rest of their documentation in a text fashion. So, by offering different modalities for them to request this expertise, it's actually meeting these practitioners where they are and their desired ability to do that. But I think what you're really getting at is how do you make sure that you're carving out enough time to do this? So, on average, our consult request, you know, depending on the complexity of cases, anywhere from, you know, 10 seconds if it's very straightforward, to two or three minutes. But we've done a lot of things in the product so that we're not asking people to download all of the patient medical record in order to request a consult. So we've added a lot of features over the years to ensure that we're not asking the practitioner to repeat information that already exists but might be locked inside an EMR. So we're able to seamlessly garner insights on where that patient is by accessing EMRs in different ways. Um, to really make sure that this is just a couple-minute experience. But that's only at the primary care provider level, which is crucial. And it has to be tied to an organizational effort. So without organizational buy-in of how practitioners are paid, how referrals are managed, how information is distributed on what patients do need referrals, what referrals could we actually kind of bring in-house... That is crucial to the, to the adoption. So there's two sides of, of the coin here. You know, One, of course, is primary care provider workflow and ease of accessing the tech and, and making sure that the case is appropriately presented with accurate information and comprehensive information. That's one side. And the second side that I think you're really getting in, into is more around what is the economic incentive for the, this primary care provider to maybe spend an, a minute or two extra longer with this patient to actually request that consult as opposed to sending out. And that requires you know, deeper buy-in from the leadership team at that organization to actually drive the appropriate adoption of using Sitka. And we have you know, a couple partners who have tried to hardwire the utilization of Sitka in by, by putting in more rigid requirements around referrals that you, know, you must use Sitka before you refer out, for instance. And so getting deeper alignment on... Broader organizational efforts and where this fits in from a prioritization perspective is crucial.
0: And you mentioned the way that providers can pull patients into this experience. I think many would probably expect that these conversations between a physician and another physician might not have so much value to patients, or might be confusing, or may be in a clinical language that just isn't helpful from the patient perspective. I would be really interested to hear more about why Sitka has made it easier and more efficient for providers to pull patients into this loop and what your experience with that has been so far.
1: Yeah, really good good question. And we did this really intentionally because of the trust that exists between the primary care provider and the patient and the trust that must be maintained. So oftentimes, if you think about what happens in a <laughs> typical clinical encounter, some things happen in between visits that you don't really ever see or know about, but a lot of times they don't. And so what we're trying to do is actually bring the primary care provider's work into a visible state for that patient. So instead of the patient saying, okay, great, the doctor's going to do this, I hope they do when I leave and I trust them, by making them part of the request for expertise, It's actually instilling more trust in the relationship, which we know that these really important patient and doctor encounters come down to the level of trust that exists between that patient and that provider as to whether they're going to adhere to their medicine, if they're going to show up to their next appointment. These are fundamental behaviors that we have to drive in order to have a different trajectory for many of our members. And it's all rooted in trust. And so if we can actually enhance and be more transparent with the primary care provider and the patient about what the primary care provider is doing on behalf of the patient's interest, it's actually going to motivate that patient to have better adherence to what that primary care provider says. It's also important when we think about including caregivers. And so we recently had a scenario where we were helping a primary care provider in an institutional and a skilled nursing facility setting take care of an ISNP member. And this member was was dealing with a couple of endocrinology-based questions and concerns. And it turned out that this individual was actually a diabetic and the daughter was bringing her mom, the patient, Peanut butter pretzels every day. And this was, of course, causing blood sugars to skyrocket and plummet and skyrocket and plummet. And by sharing the insight from the specialist to not only that patient, that member, but also the adult daughter in this case, who was actually the one thinking that she was doing something that her mother loved, which was bringing her peanut butter pretzels, which I'm sure she does love. I love them as well. But she was actually sending her into a blood sugar spiral every day you know this is where the power of the video is incredibly impactful because you can actually not only alter the behavior of the member but also their family member who are oftentimes the driving forces behind some of the clinical outcomes that we see
0: as you said that trust and that relationship is so fundamental to driving towards those positive clinical outcomes and that's a great <laughs> that's a great story and yeah i agree highlights why that trust is so clear and and why pulling patients in can be so valuable Another differentiator for Sitka that, to my understanding, is much less common among your competitors is your establishment of Sitka Medical Associates. How did Sitka get to that decision to establish their own medical practice, brick and mortar or otherwise? And what does it do for the business today that your competitors aren't getting?
1: Establishing Sitka Medical Associates was important for us for a couple of different reasons. One to take advantage and really understand the updated Medicare policies that took hold to allow for these peer-to-peer consults to exist. So it allows us to practice medicine across state lines in a really legitimate fashion where we're not working on hypothetical cases Mm -hmm. for CME, which has been the historic approach for consults, but we're actually impacting clinical care every single day, and by establishing medical associates, it roots us in the in the practice of medicine and really legitimizes to another degree our ability to practice across state lines with licensed individuals. And so that was the reason we started it. And I think it goes back a lot to Alex the deep mission alignment. You know, several of the other companies who who exist in this space were started for a desire for CME and. I started Sitka from a desire to drive value-based care for specialists, number one. And yeah, could we add CME? Of course, right? But our whole goal is that we know that we can be a better cost-effective solution to our partners and to our patients by practicing medicine, you know, across across state lines with Sitka Medical Associates and becoming part of medical records and impacting the ability to. Appropriately capture additional conditions and diagnoses that may otherwise not exist if you aren't practicing medicines across state lines and doing it more in a hypothetical state for continuing medical education.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's all all that extension of delivering on on that mission with which you set out about a year ago. Sitka raised its Series A round of funding from Benrock. At the time, you announced that Sitka's partnership with ChenMed would continue to grow. How has Sitka progressed since then? And what's the goal for this next phase of growth?
1: Yeah, we were really excited to hitch our wagon to Venrock and work to build the business alongside them, given their deep belief in value-based care. And I think that's really evident by some of their portfolio companies. Since we took on funding from Venrock, we've continued to evolve our team in a really fantastic way, bringing more folks in with value-based care experience. I mentioned, you know, Edwin and we just, you know, not yet announced, but um, recently brought on Dr. Brie Loy, who has spent time at Iora and Caremore and Canviva, and really is rooted in value-based care and has been on the front lines with primary care providers, which she is one of in rural settings to really drive the greater adoption of value-based care practices. And so it's allowed us to continue to build out our team and it's also allowed us to continue to build the business which of course is the goal that you can't build a business without an incredible team and that just proves to be paramount when you're thinking about the organization that you're building. We've recently brought on additional partners and expanded where we actually partner. So we started with ChenMed, you know, which primarily practices in an ambulatory care setting. We now work with a couple of EyeSnips, um those are institutional special needs plans. And again, not yet announced, but you know, just recently brought on scan and worked with several other larger ISNP organizations, which allows us to work with practitioners in different settings, in this case, obviously skilled nursing facilities and assisted living with IE SNPs. And so it's really continued to allow us to build the business, focus again on that provider workflow and understanding how to drive appropriate utilization and adoption of our specialty network and accessing it. And one of my main takeaways, You know, on a continual basis, is just the delight that the practitioners have who use Sitka. They're really creating relationships with our specialty providers, primarily driven off of the video encounter. And so, 100% of the time, that primary care provider gets a video from our specialists, which really allows this beautiful relationship to be developed between two practitioners who are likely never going to meet, but all have one thing in interest, which is, of course, the care for that patient. And that's been reinforced time and time again. By partnering with Venrock, we've had better acceleration of the development of the team and our partners and, of course, individual practitioners throughout the country.
0: And what are some of the factors in your mind that make Sitka and, through this vote of confidence, Venrock so bullish on the specialty care market?
1: The specialty care market today is solely driven off of the primary care provider market. and the risk environment for primary care providers is only growing. Therefore, right now, specialty care is only going further and further out of control because of the disconnect that exists between these two different delivery vehicles. And so what makes all of us, I think, incredibly bullish is that if you ask any, any of us, we've all had experiences of trying to access specialty provider expertise at the time that we need it in a place that is accessible to us, And at a price point that is manageable. Every single person has that story. And obviously, that is just amplified with our Medicare population to a degree that's unsustainable. So, you know, recently I think the specialty market was capped at like almost nearly a $300 billion industry. And that's $300 billion that is flowing in fee for service. And so, we have to, as a society, as taxpayers, figure out how to bring that massive $300 billion market into value-based care if we're actually going to move the needle and have any sustainability of our Medicare trust fund and success with total cost of care management.
0: I'd like to shift to your experience as a founder and starting Sitka, growing it up to this point you've alluded to the leadership team and you've made a number of significant additions recently that you've called out. How do you think about filling out this leadership team? And as the team has changed over time, what are the sorts of skill sets, experiences, and backgrounds you've looked for as you've put this group together?
1: Alex, it's a great question because team is the driving force behind an organization. And I think a lot of people say that, but until you're running an organization... Day in, day out, during a pandemic, doing something that no one's done before. It's easy to say that without actually understanding the meaning of it until you experience it. Alongside of the addition of, you know, Edwin and Dr. Bree Loy that I mentioned. We've also welcomed Molly Hill Patton, who also has experience from Alidaid From a financial perspective, Caroline Ryrie, who's a former consultant with Bain & Company. We've brought on an incredible head of people leader. And this is really important for how we're continuing to approach the team because we are a fully distributed team and we have been since I started Sitka just over four years ago. So add in a pandemic, a fully distributed team since day one, which some would argue is that we've had it easy because we've known how to operate in a fully virtual environment. You really have to look for that mission alignment within people and the belief that they're going to be part of something that will be incredibly difficult at times and rewarding. And so I look for people who have had experience at an early stage company that can you know, ride the waves of the ups and downs on a daily, weekly, quarterly basis, if you will, that are hungry, right? That wake up every day just striving to be not only their best self, but make everyone else around them even better. And many people, you know, whether it's our engineers who may not have worked in healthcare before, are all incredibly motivated by what we're doing because everyone has that personal experience of trying to access a specialty physician at the right time to get the right care. That collection of characteristics has to be articulated really at the onset that we're getting colleagues who are gritty and hungry for impact and excited about the work and excited to be at a series A company growing every day But we're doing something that no one's done before, and that can be incredibly difficult as well. So you have to have a problem-solving mind and a desire to really wake up and strive each day.
0: On a more personal note, you recently welcomed a new member to the family. Congratulations. Thanks. This also meant that shortly after your Series A fundraising, you went to your new investors to tell them that you were expecting... This experience, for a lot of reasons, is pretty uncommon in the early-stage startup and health tech space. How did you approach that conversation? And who did you look to, if anyone, as an example for how to handle those next steps?
1: Thanks, Alex. It is an incredibly exciting time as uh, our little guy is about to turn seven months. But rewind to that time when I was fundraising while newly pregnant, having morning sickness, and also having deep conviction that I was going to be able to juggle, having a little one and building a company. After we closed the financing, you know it was a really exciting time for for George and I as a family, and also really exciting for the business. We just had this influx of capital, but I needed to bring these two worlds together. And I went to Bob and Brian with that level of excitement and also that deep conviction that we are going to be a successful organization because of the impact that we are having and told them that George and I were expecting a little one, you know, seven or eight months down the road and that we would manage through it. And I have to say that it was met with such excitement and joy not only for George and I, but also for the business because it meant that the business had to grow to a point where I needed to be able to take some time off and it needed to continue on its path. And so from that point in time, I worked really closely with Bob and Brian and the entire Benrock talent team to continue to build our leadership team so that I could take some time off and welcome Dalman to this world that we have. And I've never felt... Supported in a way that has not only felt supportive to me as now a new mom and as a wife, and also an entrepreneur, and to build a successful business in the way that I was met with Bob and Brian. You know, they both have families that are incredibly important to them. And obviously, that experience, I think, impacts their excitement for us. And that level of support has continued to grow from our entire investment community. Because I think also, as a world, to your point, you know, there aren't that many examples out there of who to look to. And I just had to look at myself and say, okay, well, this is awesome. And we're going to do all of these things. And they're going to be on board with it because they are incredible human beings and have families that are really important to them as well. And so I was able to quickly align on the importance of, of that while building the business and have felt nothing but great support and was actually just texting you know, pictures of, of our little guy last night to one of our investors. And that's really important because starting a business can be very rewarding on one hand and incredibly lonely and difficult on another. And having the support of your entire life from your investor community is a really heartfelt and pretty magical spot to be if you can get there. But it means that you as an entrepreneur have to be vulnerable enough to share that life with them in order to create those relationships that can be so, so supportive.
0: That's so wonderful to hear. And really interesting way to think about the needs of your business and how and why your business needs to grow over a set period of time. Plenty of people set deadlines and this was uh, <laughs> one of the realer ones this one was coming
1: yeah exactly yeah it forced a lot of decisions that maybe would not have occurred and the beauty of when i was off for a short period of time is that it created a, a stronger relationship with each of the individuals at sitka and the leadership team i handed you know what i had historically called my baby sitka over to my team to manage while i had you know a real baby <laughs> And that allowed for the creation of trust and conversation that wasn't previously there. So to the extent that it has been an incredibly healthy exercise for us as an organization, I was just talking to Bob and said, I actually think that every entrepreneur should have to be able to step away from their business at some point because it's actually going to propel the business in a different direction and create a healthier relationship for everyone around it. Founders are biased. Founders can get in their own head and can get their existence wrapped up in their business. While all of that is true and can be healthy, it can also be detrimental. And taking time off and maintaining perspective is not always talked about in the entrepreneurial world, but can have upside that is limitless if you allow it
0: to. As you mentioned, there weren't really other examples for you to look to You know, for the next founder in this position who is going to be looking to you as the person to follow, is there any advice you would give to them? And out of this experience that has been, to your point, very positive, is there any guidance you would pass along?
1: There is guidance. And I think this goes for anyone who's looking to start an organization or just be successful in your own life in a world, which is you have to be authentic. And you can't pretend that you're somebody else. You can't pretend that there aren't constraints on your life and stressors in in your life. And you have to be able to share those things because if you're going to build an organization that's mission-driven and rooted in a source of transparency where an organization is healthy and you can have conversations... About maternity leave and paternity leave in a world that has historically felt pretty unsafe to do that, you have to create the environment. And the only way you create the environment is if you are authentic with yourself and those around you. And if you let that be the driving force to the deeper relationships that you can actually develop while building a successful organization, that's the magic and that's the fun when you get to be yourself. And that's oftentimes when we're our best. And if you can't tie those two worlds together, then I think that you're ultimately harming yourself, but you may be harming those around you as well.
0: Since we are an MBA-run podcast, we do love to ask, what is your career advice to MBAs and other graduate students interested in this space?
1: Yeah, well, since you are a student right now, take advantage of the student hat. You have incredible access to people because the only agenda that you have right now is to learn. And so I would talk to as many people as you possibly can before you join a company. Because then once you join that company, everyone else is going to look at you with that company's agenda in mind. Whereas right now, your agenda is is to learn and absorb and, and take in the world as much as possible. And there's something wholesome about that that gets very diluted once you join an organization. So one, take advantage of the student status now talk to as many leaders and organizations that you possibly can go spend a day with people go shadow immerse yourself in whatever might be interesting to you because that window will close once you align with a certain organization
0: we do hear the power of that .edu email address when you're <laughs> trying to trying to learn about an industry especially one maybe you're less familiar with and finding people who are willing to take the time to teach you as a student does have a different dynamic than you know when you're calling from a competitor asking to learn more about their business.
1: And the other thing, you know, is I talked to many students and was actually just talking to a, a Georgetown public policy class earlier this morning, interested in Medicare policy, which is so exciting to me that we still have folks that are really excited to learn more about Medicare policy. If you reach out to an organization and they won't take your call. It's probably not an organization that you necessarily want to align with anyway. So consider it a filtering mechanism as well for that .edu email address that, that you have for only a period of time.
0: And we also make sure to ask, is Sitka hiring MBAs? And what sort of skills and backgrounds are you looking for in new hires?
1: Yes, we are hiring on our growth team. And there's actually a role that would be perfect for an MBA candidate who really wants to have an impact on the growth of our organization, working both across our internal teams, and of course, evaluating external partners to bring on more organizations to have the ability to access our specialty physician network. And would encourage folks to check it out. It's on our website, and happy to to talk with any of you about it as well.
0: Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us on The Pulse today. We really appreciate your time.
1: Alex, it's been such a pleasure. I'm really excited for you and all of your fellow MBA students to be on this path. And if there's anything we can do to be helpful at Sitka, by all means, count us in.